0: I'm going to pray now and dig into the word. and Then we're going to move into a, a rich time of communion and of worship together. So let's pray. This, this, I just have to tell you, this passage this week, this is a tough passage. And uh, it's a sobering passage. That's one reason it's tough. It's also tough in terms of, what Holy Spirit, what are you saying here? What's, what's, what's the author saying here? So I'm just going to pray. I've been praying this all week, but let me pray again. Lord, I need your wisdom. I want to be in submission to your word. I don't want to be imposing other things on your word. We want, we want your word to speak this morning. And so please, Lord, do that, I pray. Give me wisdom, give us wisdom as we study this sobering, weighty passage. And I pray, Lord, that you would deeply, deeply impact each of our hearts. And the outcome of this would be an earnest, wholehearted, fresh turning to Jesus Christ as our Lord and as our Savior and as our treasure. I pray that you would do this. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 6. And if you need a Bible, as we always say, go ahead and raise your hand. We'll bring one to you. Hebrews 6 in the Bibles we're passing out is page 1003. Now, last week, we saw talked about how this letter was written to a group of believers who had started off with passionate, joyful faith in Christ. And the author gives us a very powerful illustration in chapter 10. What happened in their early years was that some of them were arrested and thrown in prison for being Christians. And that created a dilemma because back in that culture, if you were in prison, you would not eat unless someone from the outside brought you food. And so these believers faced a, a dilemma. Are they going to take food to their brothers and sisters in Christ? Are they take food to the prison for them? Because if they took food to feed these Christians, they'd be identified as Christians. And they could be arrested. They could lose their jobs. They could have their property plundered. And so what did they do? Back in their earlier years as believers, they chose to take food to their brothers and sisters in prison. And the author says in chapter 10 that they were full of joy when their property was plundered. They were identified as Christians. Their property was plundered. The government didn't care. The government let people persecute the Christians. Their property was plundered. And they were full of joy when their property was plundered because, the author says, they knew they had a better and an abiding possession in Jesus Christ. They were full of joy when their stuff was stolen because they had Jesus So that's how they started, this passionate, fervent faith in Jesus Christ at the beginning of their Christian lives. But as we keep reading Hebrews, we see that over time, something terrible had happened to some of them. Chapter 2, verse 1 says that some were drifting away from the word of God. Chapter 3, the author says some of them were on the brink of falling away from Christ, so the question we asked last week was, how did they move from being full of passionate, joyful faith in Christ to now some of them on the brink of falling away from Christ? What happened? And in chapter 5, verses 11 through 14, we saw that what happened was that some of them, over the years, had become dull of hearing God's Word. They still heard God's Word. They probably read it on their own. They heard it you know, when the, when the believers gathered, like in this setting here. They, they heard it, but they heard it with dullness, which means they didn't hear it earnestly, prayerfully, like their lives depended upon it, which it, they did. Instead, just kind of went one ear, bounced off a hard heart, and then went out the other. And that's what happened to move them from passionate, joyful faith in Christ. Now, over the years, some of them were on the brink of falling away. What happened was they became dull of hearing. I've been hearing good reports, church, It me with joy about some of you really earnestly hearing God's Word this week. As you've been reading on your own, it's been so encouraging to hear that. And I've I've had fresh earnestness too because of this passage. So that's verses 11 through 14 of chapter 5. And now in chapter 6, the author both explains why it's so urgent that we not be dull of hearing. That they not, that we not be dull of hearing. Why it's so urgent that we be earnest in hearing. And he explains what steps we take to to move ahead in that. So the first question I want to raise is, what should they do, given what's happened in them? And look at what he says in chapter 6, verse 1. And this first line is very puzzling. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Sounds puzzling, doesn't it? sounds like maturity means moving away from Christ. But we know that can't be what he means because all through this letter he has said things like, chapter 2, verse 1, pay much closer attention to what you've heard about Christ. Okay, stay there. Pay much closer attention. Chapter 3, verse 1, Therefore, holy brothers, consider Jesus. Think deeply about Jesus. Don't move away from Jesus. Think deeply about Jesus. Chapter 12, verse 1, look to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. So what does he mean then when he calls us to leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity? And It became more clear to me as I kept reading. So start, let's do verses 1 and 2, and then I'll talk about what's going on here. Verses 1 and 2. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. Here's what's going on. The author is saying that when you first become a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ, like Ming-Lon's father did this last week, you lay a foundation... You, you lay a, a foundation for the rest of your Christian life when you first become a follower of Christ. And you lay this foundation, and he lists some things that are part of that foundation in verses 1 and 2. So part of that foundation is repentance from dead works. Dead works in the book of Hebrews refers to sin. So you, you turn your back on sin. It doesn't mean you become perfect, but you say, I want to renounce sin, all-known sin. I want to turn away from all that stuff. And then the second step is faith in God. That's the second part of the foundation. Faith in all that God has promised to be to us in Christ Jesus. I trust you, Jesus Christ, as my Savior. I trust you as my Lord. I trust you as my heart satisfying treasure. So there's repentance from dead works, faith toward God. There's also instruction about washings as part of that foundation. What does that mean? Washings is the word baptism. And probably what this refers to is teaching about how the Old Testament washings were one thing, but New Testament baptism is another. That's probably what that's about, so it involved getting baptized. The laying on of hands was part of that foundation. This means where you you become a follower of Jesus, and you can ask brothers or sisters in Christ to lay hands on you and to pray for a greater outpouring of the work of the Holy Spirit, which God will gladly do as people lay hands on you and pray for you. The resurrection of the dead is part of this foundation. That means you know that because of Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection power, I, through faith in him, will be raised from the dead at the end of history. Don't need to fear death. Resurrection's coming. That's part of that foundation. And then eternal judgment. You know that at the end of history, you're going to be facing God as the judge, but Jesus has paid for all of your sins on the cross. He clothes you with his perfect righteousness when you put your trust in him. So you'll stand before God with all your sins paid for, clothed in Jesus, moral perfection, and the Father will smile. And he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. So that's the foundation. You get the picture here? When you become a follower of Jesus Christ, you lay a foundation which includes repentance from all known sin and faith in Jesus Christ. So here's what that would look like combining last week's passage with this week's passage. When you become a Christian, you hear the milk of the word. Remember last week we talked about the milk of the word? You hear the milk earnestly. And you hear that there's a God. Okay, there's a God. Just like Ming-Lan's father said, there's a God. And you hear that he created you so that you could have the joy of knowing him. Are you Are you holding earnestly to that truth? Does that truth shape your life? There's a God. He's created you so you could have the joy of beholding him, knowing him, loving him, walking with him. And then you also hear that the milk of the word that you and all of us have turned our backs on God, refused to seek our joy in Him, settling for puny, passing, tiny little joys and pff, gone. We've all done that and we face His judgment, but that He sent Jesus to pay for our sins on the cross. So we, we're hearing the milk of the word. We're, we're earnestly hearing it. And so because you hear this Milk of the Word, you say, okay, I'm going to lay a foundation of repentance. I'm going to turn away from all those things I used to trust to satisfy me. Help me do this. I'm turning to you, Jesus. Change me. Forgive me. Satisfy me. You lay this foundation, this rock solid foundation, trusting Jesus Christ alone as your Savior, Lord, and treasure. And then once that foundation is laid, okay, you're earnestly hearing the milk. Once that foundation is laid, you leave that foundation in the sense of building on it. It's not that you move off that foundation onto some other foundation. No, no, no. You, you build on it. I think that's what the author means when he says, leaving the elementary doctrine of Christ. He means we build on it. Okay? The fact that we've laid a foundation of repentance and faith, we, we build on it. Now, Yes, repentance is part of the foundation, and faith is the foundation. doesn't mean we never repent anymore, right? I'm repenting every day. You are too, right? That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It means we're fighting the fight of faith every day, but you're building on that foundation. So that foundation means that there's come a a time in your life when you, from the heart, said, I renounce all known sin. Because I want you, Jesus Christ, save me, change me, satisfy me. That's the foundation plank there. That's how it's supposed to work. Okay? But some of these, in this church, some of those reading this letter, had something wrong. What was their problem? You could think that their problem was, well, their foundation's fine, But they need to build on it to maturity. We could think that. Foundation's fine. They need to build on it. But remember last week we saw their foundation was not fine. They need to be taught again the basic doctrines of Christ, the author said in last week's passage, chapter 5, verse 12. They need to hear the milk again. They need milk, he says, not solid food. So there was a problem with their foundation. Their foundation was crumbling. So, what was the problem? Notice he says, don't lay this foundation again. Now think about that. If you have to lay a foundation again, then something was wrong with your foundation, right? If your foundation's good, you don't need to lay a foundation again, right? Once the foundation's laid, it's good. But if you have to lay a foundation again, then there's something wrong with it. So let's just think about this. Now Jerry, Jerry Shipp, Chuck, you guys work with Cement. Okay, if you pour a foundation and then you've got to lay it again, there's a problem. Maybe you didn't have enough cement in the mix. Right, guys? I don't know anything about it, but is this true? Okay. Maybe you need some more cement in the mix. Maybe you need some more rebar. Head over rebar. Okay. Rebar. Pretty good, huh? All right. I looked it up. Okay. So maybe you didn't have enough cement in the foundation. Maybe there was not enough rebar in that foundation. So here's what's wrong with some of them. And it may be what's wrong with some of us. Okay? What was wrong with some of them is that there was a problem with their foundation. And that's why they weren't moving on to maturity. And, church brothers and sisters, there may be something wrong with your foundation. And that may be why you're not moving on to maturity spiritually. Maybe some of them maybe some of you didn't have enough of the cement of faith maybe the cement of faith is lacking i mean is is faith in Jesus Christ strong as the foundation of your life ask yourself do you do you really trust are you really trusting that Christ can forgive all of your sins do you know that past, present, future? Do you know that? If you don't know that, if you're not trusting him for all your forgiveness, if you don't know that because of what he did on the cross and you're trusting him, even with weak faith, okay? if you're trusting him, the father will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Do you know that? If you don't, then that crucial part of the cement is is missing and your foundation is going to be crumbly. Do you trust that Jesus' resurrection power can change you when your heart's feeling greedy or discouraged or boastful or all the different kind of things our hearts can get into? Do you understand that his resurrection power can change your heart? Do you trust that no matter how far from him you feel, he can bring you back? He can change your heart as you pray and seek him. Do you you trust his heart-changing power? that's not part of your foundation, it's going to be crumbly. Maybe most important, do you trust that he is your all-satisfying, all-satisfying treasure? Do you trust that knowing him, beholding him, worshipping him, he is so glorious, that's everything. All I need, you, forever. Do you trust that he's your all-satisfying treasure? So if your foundation did not have the cement of faith. It's going to be crumbly. Okay? do not be building on it. So maybe you don't have the cement of faith, or maybe you don't have the rebar of repentance. Okay? Maybe that's what's missing in your foundation. Maybe you never really turned from sexual sin. Okay? And I'm not talking about that you're perfect from here on in, but maybe when you met the Lord, it's like, uh, I'll take Jesus, and I'm going to hang on to that. You're missing Rebar. Crumbly foundation. It's not the foundation you need. Maybe you never really renounced self-righteousness. Uh, I still think I'm going to impress God by what I do. I'm better than other people. He's pretty impressed with me. I'm, 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 a, I'm a good guy. Instead of God, be merciful to me, a sinner. If if you're if you haven't renounced the sin of self-righteousness, you're missing some rebar. And your foundation is going to be crumbly. So when you gave your life to christ did you renounce all known sin and turn doesn't mean you become perfect you're still tempted but then you you just look to jesus and you trust him weekly i'm still being torn i've got greed i've got lust but i'm trusting you forgive me change me satisfy me Ooh, that's cement okay and that's rebar and that's a strong foundation that's what it should be. And some of them were lacking the cement of faith and or the rebar of repentance. And if you don't have the cement of faith or the rebar of repentance, your foundation's <laughs> going to be crumbling. So he's saying stop relaying this weak, faithless or repentanceless foundation. Lay a strong foundation. Turn from sin. Trust him to help you do that to forgive you, to change you, to satisfy you. And then with that foundation, rock solid, hard, rebar, faith, cement. With that foundation, you'll be able to build and go on to maturity. Walking with Christ, enjoying the word, praying, sharing the gospel in your neighborhood, forgiving people at work who hurt you, caring for the poor. Think about unreached people groups. You'll be, be moving on in that point. That's what he's calling them to do. Some of them had gone from passionate, joyful faith in Christ and were now, because they'd become dull of hearing, were on the brink of falling away, and he's saying, there's a problem with your foundation. What you need to do is strong faith foundation, strong repentance foundation, be established in that foundation, and then grow on to maturity. Now, why is that so urgent? That they do this, that they fully repent, that they strongly trust. Why is that so urgent? And the author tells us in verses 3 through 6, it's a sobering passage, okay? First, verse 3, he says, and this we will do. Strong repentance, full faith in Christ, established foundation, this we will do. Moving ahead then on that foundation into maturity, this we will do if... God permits. And what does that mean, if God permits? It means that we understand that because of our sinful nature, we are not able to repent apart from God's power. Do you understand that this last week when you repented over losing patience with your kids maybe, and you really were broken before the Lord and saying, Father, forgive me. Turn from that. I trust you through Jesus. That God was enabling that. It was God's power that accomplished that in you. Do you understand that? You can't just choose to do that willy-nilly on your own. God's got to graciously do that, and he does that for his his people all the time. He enables us. He permits us to do that. So here's what I think is going on in verse 3. I think some of his listeners were saying something like this. I'm definitely going to repent and trust Christ. I'm definitely planning, author of Hebrews, I'm definitely planning on repenting and trusting Christ after I make a certain amount of money. I'm definitely going to repent and trust Christ after one more trip to Vegas with the guys. Or I'm definitely planning on repenting and trusting Christ fully. Just let me have this fling with this person at the workplace who's not my wife. Okay, so I'm going to repent... Later, I promise, I will. Just one more dalliance here. And I think he wants to sober them by saying, You need God's power to enable you to repent. And if you continue in willful sin, you can reach a point where God says, No more grace. Lifts his hand off of you. And if he does that, you will never be able to repent again. That's the point of verses 4 through 6. See why this is such a sobering passage? Verse 4, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gifts and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God, and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, it is impossible to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding it up to contempt. Here's the point. God is slow to anger, loves mercy, loves compassion, So much so that he delivered up his own son to the cross. God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And God loves us so much that he gives us this warning right in these verses. That's why he has you here this morning. He loves you and wants you to hear this warning. The warning is repent now. Repent now. Don't put it off. Because if you think, "Just I want to have just this little fling with this person at work, and then when that's over, then I'm going to fully repent. If you talk that way, it's like you are crucifying Jesus on the cross again. And you could be in danger of actually so dishonoring Christ that God would lift his hand off of you at that point. Here, here's why you'd be crucifying Christ again. You know about Jesus' death on the cross, the scourging and the nails and the hours of agony. None of us can conceive. And you've seen Him in your mind on the cross paying for your sins. That's what sin does. That's what sin deserves. And so you've seen Him paying for your sins. And then He said, It is finished after hours of agony. And He gave up His spirit Died, taken down, buried, rose again three days later at the right hand of the Father. And if you say, uh, just a little affair here, and then I'll really get serious and repent, here's what you're saying Jesus, could I nail you to the cross one more time? Could I crucify you for this sin I'm going to commit? I think so little of your death on the cross that I'm willing to do this knowing that this is what it costs you. So picture yourself asking Jesus, "Uh, could I nail you to the cross one more time? Could I scourge you, please, so I can do this? That's what you're saying if you move ahead willfully, flagrantly, in sin, Thinking, I'll just repent later on. And the author, with I'm sure tears in his eyes, would say, Don't do that. That dishonors Christ's death. And it could so dishonor Christ's death, I don't know if it would, but it could so dishonor Christ's death that you are holding him up to such contempt that the Father says, I'm lifting my hand off of this person. They will never be able to repent again. Do you understand that grace to repent is grace? We're not owed it. It's not justice that we get to repent, it's grace. And and God can leave us to the justice of our choices to sin by saying, well, okay then. Okay then. Now, again, God loves us, He is slow to anger abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. But if we continue in willful sin and say, I'll put off repenting, then we can come to a point where God says no more. Now, why is that so serious? Verses 7 and 8. Here's why it's so serious. Verse 7, Land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. (laughs) So that, that verse is talking about land, that's, that's people. And the rain of the milk of God's word is falling upon it. And verse 7, earnest hearers, not dull hearers, earnest hearers. They're earnestly hearing God's word. And so they are repenting. They've, they've got this foundation of repentance from sin and trusting Jesus Christ, Lord, Savior, treasure. Not that they're perfect, but they have to sin, fighting sin, battling sin, not one more sin, then I'll repent. They're fighting sin, trusting Jesus, foundation, rock solid, and they're bringing forth a crop. Fighting sin is part of the crop. Loving your spouse, crop. Caring for your kids, crop. Working hard at your job, crop. Being prayerful, all this harvest, crop. And they will get a blessing from God, verse 7 verse 8 but if the land drinks the rain hears the milk with dullness no earnest repentance no strong trust no turning to Jesus saying even I believe help my unbelief but just kind of playing games crumbly foundation it will bear thorns and thistles no healthy crop Can't build on that crumbly foundation. There's no maturity there. It's worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Now, it's interesting that he says it's near to being cursed. It's great hope here. Okay? You could have borne thorns and thistles. Your your foundation could have been really crumbly, not really repenting, not, not really trusting Jesus, not turning to him, just kind of playing games. Crumbly foundation, no repentance, no faith. But God is merciful and slow to anger. So you you are maybe near to being cursed, but that could change. That could change in a, in a heartbeat. Saying, Jesus, help me change. Okay? But if that doesn't change, if if you don't turn to Jesus and say, help me, you're near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned, which is a picture of eternal judgment. Now again, verses 7 and 8. God the Father had the Holy Spirit give these words to the author of Hebrews because he loves us. He does not want any of us to be verse 8. He wants all of us to be verse 7. It's possible in a group this size, some of you are verse 8. Okay? Near to being cursed by God. That's why He has you here. He loves you. He had the Holy Spirit write these words through the the author of Hebrews. He wants to wake you up. He wants to shake you up to what's really going on. So we're not playing games spiritually here. This is reality, verses 7 and 8. Okay, now. This raises a crucial question, though, and and, and the question that probably many of you have if you're you're earnestly hearing this, a question is, can this cursing and being burned, in verse 8, and the crucifying, again, the Son of God to your own harm and holding him up to contempt so much that God would lift his hand so you can't repent, all these judgment statements, can that judgment happen to someone who's been saved? Big question, right? Can this happen to someone who's been saved? And you could think so from this passage because of verse 4. Did you catch verse 4? Doesn't verse 4 describe saved people? Isn't that what is meant by people who've been enlightened, who've tasted the heavenly gift, who've shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted the goodness of the Word of God, the powers of the age to come? Doesn't that describe salvation? And if it does describe salvation, doesn't that mean that saved people... Can reach a point where God lifts his grace off of them and they're never able to repent and end up being cursed and, and burned. Doesn't this refer to saved people? The answer is no, it doesn't. Because of verse nine. Verse I love verse nine. Verse nine is so encouraging to me, okay? Look at what he says. It's very interesting. He's just described a group of people in verses four through six. We've had these spiritual experiences and and then sinned so grievously that that they were never able to repent again. Just describe this group of people in verses 4 through 6. Then he says, verse 9, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation, okay? So he's just described this group of people and then he says, but now you were convinced of better things that accompany salvation, which means that these people don't have salvation. Do you see that? Just describes these people, describing them, enlightened, da 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 He says, but now I'm talking about you, and you have things that are better because you have the things that involve salvation. Do you see that in the passage? Verse 9 shows that the people he's been talking about don't have salvation, So this judgment cannot happen to someone who is genuinely trusting Jesus Christ. If in your heart right now, even in weakness, you're looking to Jesus, I'm looking to you, help me, change me, forgive me, satisfy me, everything I need is in you, I'm looking to you, if that's where you are, then you can know with 100% certainty that 100 years from now you're going to be in heaven. Because God's grace is going to keep you repenting all the way to the end. If, on the other hand, you are thinking, she's really cute at work. Just one little dalliance here, and then I'm going to get serious. Jesus, let me scourge you one more time. If that's what's in your heart, then you can't know which group you're in right now you might be in the group that never was saved. Your foundation is that rocky, and you might be in the group where God says, lifting my hand completely off, you will never repent. And it'd be just judgment. The person was never saved. But see, part of what the author wants to do in this passage is to list off in verses 4 through 6, all these experiences because people can think they're saved because they've had these various traits. Like, see, you can be enlightened. Notice verse 4, 5, 6 here. You can be enlightened, which means have lots of Bible knowledge and not be genuinely saved. Do you know people who have lots of Bible knowledge? Maybe you've been there who, they're not serious about trusting Christ. They're not looking to him saying, Help me! Lots lots of Bible knowledge. Dangerous, dangerous. You can taste the heavenly gift. It doesn't mean the, the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. That means you've, you can feel sort of a quickening of the Spirit. Maybe you can feel some Holy Spirit conviction of sin, but not be genuinely saved. You can taste the goodness of the Word of God. Have you heard it from your parents, you kids, or from teachers, home group people, but not be genuinely saved? You can have tasted the powers of the age to come. Think it's like what Jesus says in Matthew 7, 22. He says, there will be people, many people, who will say, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we work miracles in your name? He will say, yes, you did. But I never knew you. Depart from me. They've tasted of the powers of the age to come. And so the author, because he loves us, the Holy Spirit, because God loves us, has the author write these words because he doesn't want anyone to be deceived. No one be deceived here. Not amount of Bible knowledge, not various tuggings on your heart, not just you, you've enjoyed hearing the Bible taught, taste of the powers of the ages to come. None of those show that you're genuinely saved. So then the last question is, how can we know we're, we're genuinely saved? How can you know? One very simple answer. Look to Jesus. Right now. Just look to Jesus. As weak as you are, make any difference. We're not saved by strong faith. We're saved by even weak faith in a very strong Savior. Okay? Any faith works. You look to Him. I'm totally tempted by this woman at work. Help me. Oh, that's Beautiful building on the foundation towards maturity. See that? So see, right now, you can know with 100% certainty that you've been genuinely saved. If in your heart you're saying, okay, yes, Jesus, this is my heart. I'm looking to you right now. I'm looking to you. I'm trusting that your death on the cross can forgive me for all of my sins, past, present, and future. I'm trusting that your resurrection power can change this heart. As weak and as unspiritual as I might feel right now, I'm looking at Jesus. Resurrection power through faith alone in Christ alone. And then we see his death. We see his resurrection. We see him. And as we see him and as we trust him, we will want him. And we will love him. And we will desire him so much that we will turn around and say, No! It's all that other stuff behind you. No to sin. Again, it doesn't mean you become perfect. But you're saying, No! If you're not saying no, crumbly foundation. Say no. And then you say, Help me say no. Change me so that I can live no. Trusting you. So, look to Jesus Christ. Okay? Let me just make this really, really clear. This is not a matter of you becoming good enough. None of us is. I can look in my heart right now and I can see impure motives. I don't say that with any happiness. I trust that I'm fighting them. I can look at this past morning, and okay? And that's true for all of us. I've got enough indwelling sin in me to mean I shouldn't be saved right now. And you do too. It's not what it's about. Where am I looking? Jesus, Jesus, the cross, I love the cross. There's that impure motive, punished and gone, no condemnation. There's every sin past, every sin present, every sin future. I'm looking to Jesus by faith. We're saved by faith alone, in Christ alone. But see, is that your heart right now? Are you? Or are you saying, Jesus and this? You got to see him and say, "Help me say no to all that stuff. I want to say no to all that stuff. Help me." And he smiles and he will go to work and he will change you, forgive you, change you and satisfy you. So here's what I want us to do as we move into communion now. I want us to do that. Let's look to Jesus Christ. Look to him by faith. I see the cross, forgiveness, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I see your resurrection power, which can change my heart right now. I see your beauty, your majesty, your royalty, your goodness, your perfection, your power, your authority, your righteousness. You are beautiful. I want you more than anything else. And to have you, I'll say no to everything else. And if that's your heart, help me, Lord. We're just saying help me then you can be completely assured that you are in and His grace will be on you forever. He will not let you fall away. And you can be assured of that because of your heart looking towards Him with genuine, earnest faith right now. So band, why don't you guys come on up. I want to pray this over us. So we're going to move into communion now. And I just thought, as Dave and I were talking together, it would be so fitting to have communion be the where we move after this passage. Sobering passage, right? Frightening passage. Because God loves us. You know how deceptive sin is. We need like a two before us sometimes on the side of our head to wake us up to, to, I've been deceived. And so he wants to speak strong words that we will understand. It's faith alone, looking to Christ alone, turning from everything else. Asking him to help me turn. Thank you for forgiveness. Thank you for your power which can change me. Thank you for your all satisfying presence which I have through Christ, through through faith alone. So as we move into communion now, I just want us to look to Jesus. We need him. We need him. He's everything we need. This is just beautiful. There's no temptation, no weakness, no doubt, no nothing that as you look to Him, He won't take care of. He'll take care of everything if we will turn from everything else and look to Him by faith. So, Father, I ask that right now, each of us, Lord, would be looking to You by faith, turning from self righteousness, turning from sin turning from pride, turning from whatever would make us not look to you. Lord, we want to look to you now by faith and say we trust you, Jesus. We believe, help our unbelief. Move upon us, Lord. Thank you for forgiveness. Thank you for your power. Thank you for your all-satisfying beauty. Move upon us now, Lord, as we partake of communion. Pour out your Spirit, I pray. Do a deep heart work for the glory of your name. Let's just lift the cup up as an acknowledgement before the Lord Jesus of his shed blood. This cup is a picture of Jesus' blood which was poured out for us on the cross. And The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Sweet. Words cleansing us from sin's guilt. We're clothed with Jesus' perfect righteousness, all by looking to Him by faith. We we look to Jesus by faith. We say, "We trust you, Jesus. We trust your death." It's not about our worthiness, about the strength of our faith. It's about what about Jesus' worthiness the strength of his death. So Lord Jesus, we worship you. So just in the quietness of your heart, as you're lifting the cup up there, just in the quietness of your heart, thank him. Thank him. And look to him. Set your heart on him by faith. We trust you, Jesus. We trust your death. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So go ahead and partake. Let's hold up the bread before the Lord. The bread is a picture of his torn, broken body. The suffering he endured. We look to the cross and we see what our sin deserves. Punishment from God. But we see it poured out upon Jesus. Jesus loved us and gave himself up for our sins. The Father demonstrated his love for us by delivering his son up to have his body broken. So we give you praise, Jesus, that by faith alone in Christ alone, all the punishment we deserve was absorbed in your body. All the punishment we deserve was poured out upon you. And by faith alone in Christ alone, Forever, we will know your passionate love for us. Never condemnation, never punishment, just your passionate love for us. So thank Jesus for bearing our punishment in his body on the cross. Thank him in the quietness of your heart. Thank you, Lord. Thank him that as you are looking to him by faith, there is no condemnation ever that you'll face. Thank Him. Thank Him that forever it's going to be love, God's joy to do us good with all His heart and all His soul forever. Today, this next hour, and a million years from now because of Jesus' broken body. And Jesus said, this is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So go ahead and partake. We love you, Jesus, Messiah. We worship you for all you've done.